This is the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, featuring talks and conversations recorded live by the Public Programs Department of California Institute of Integral Studies, a nonprofit university in San Francisco. To find out more about CIIS and public programs like this one, visit our website, ciis.edu, and connect with us on social media at CIIS Pub Programs. I've heard you say that nonviolence is really a way of life and not like a strategy. Um, and I think people have so many misperceptions of nonviolence and that maybe just starting with um, like at its core and at its essence, how would you describe what nonviolence is and isn't? Yeah, I feel like after 20 years, I should know, I should have a, a like a canned response to that. Um, it, it's actually in some ways for me a lot easier to talk about what nonviolence isn't. So I'll start there. Um, and I'll start by sharing a story that that's in my book as well, um, and a story that I've shared a bunch of times in my workshops for anyone who's ever been. <clears throat> um, in Kingian nonviolence, we make a distinction between nonviolence spelt with a hyphen and nonviolence spelt without the hyphen, uh, because when you put the hyphen in the word, it separates the word and it turns it into an adjective. And non-hyphen violence, all that says is something is not violent, and something is the absence of violence. And I talk about in my book how that is the biggest and most dangerous misunderstanding of the idea of nonviolence is that people think that as long as I'm not being violent, then I'm practicing nonviolence. And the story that I want to share is uh, I live in a neighborhood in Oakland called Funktown, which is a, a beautiful neighborhood. It's one of the most diverse neighborhoods in the country. Um, and it also has you know, its fair share of challenges. And so there's a lot of conflict outside my, my window every day. And about 10, year, <clears throat> about 10 years ago now, I was taking a nap in my apartment and I was woken up by a commotion outside and there was an argument happening and arguments happen all the time in my neighborhood. So I was just trying to go back to sleep and the argument kept getting worse and it kept getting worse and it kept getting louder. And I finally got out of my bed and looked down the window and there was a woman on the ground who was getting beat and she was right below my window. I live on the second floor and she wasn't not only getting beaten, but she was screaming for help. And so I jumped up out of my bed and I put on my shoes and I ran downstairs, opened up the gate. And by this point, they had gone across the street. I was still going on. And I ran across the street and I managed to break up this fight. And by the time I got down there, about 15 of my neighbors had heard the commotion and they had all come outside and they were just watching this woman get beat, not doing anything to help. And I always argue that all of my neighbors who are just watching this woman get beat were practicing non-hyphen violence in that they weren't being violent. They were explicitly being not violent, right? They weren't throwing the punches. They weren't throwing the kicks. And you could even argue that I was being more violent than my neighbors were because I used a limited amount of physical force to pull the two parties apart and I might have caused some harm in the process. So if our understanding of non-violence is simply to not be violent, then it's easy to justify being a bystander and witnessing the killing of unarmed black people by the police, the destruction of our planet, rises in homelessness, increases in, 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 in drug use, all of these things, and just say, that's none of my business. I'm just going to stay in my corner and meditate and, 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 you know, and, and buy organic groceries and, and consider myself a nonviolent person. But nonviolence is not about what not to do. 
Nonviolence is about when you see violence and injustice in your community, what are you going to do about it? How are you going to engage with the harm and with the violence and with the injustice and try to transform that situation? And so it is, you know, one of the principles, the first principle of, of nonviolence is nonviolence is a way of life for courageous people because in order to make that kind of fundamental transformation in society, it can't just be a switch that you turn on when you go to a protest and then you turn it off when you're home or even when you're in the organizing meetings organizing the protest, right? And so, yeah, it's it's a worldview and a way of life and a, and a way that we understand the world and try to walk in the world. Um, the You sort of started to get into it that there are these six principles of Kingian nonviolence, right, that are really at the sort of foundational for what nonviolence is. And maybe I know that you would spend like five days in a workshop explaining what each principle was and engaging them and doing stuff around them. But I think it would be if you would break down some of those for everyone. Um, And also, I think backtracking a little bit, like why Dr. King and how that was an influence for you and why, why is that the path that you think we should be embarking on? Well, maybe we could start there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I, I guess I'll, I'll say that, you know, I, I had an opportunity to interview um, Clay Carson once years ago. He's the, the the founder and director of the Dr. Martin Luther King Research and Education Center at Stanford. And he said that Dr. King didn't start a movement, right? That he was just like one kind of point in a movement that has been going on since the beginning of human history. And so in that sense, while my particular training has been under the lineage of Dr. King, ultimately nonviolence is a timeless set of teachings. And and for me and my story, it just happened to have come through Dr. King. But I had, uh, as I was sharing, I started facilitating nonviolence trainings when I was 19 years old. Uh, And then I felt that something was missing in the trainings that we were doing. And so I stopped doing it. And I stayed involved in social change work. It's pretty much all I did since I was 17 years old. And fast forward 10 years after I stopped facilitating these nonviolence trainings, like during that whole time, I was involved in a lot of different movements, but the word nonviolence didn't really mean much to me. Mm -hmm. And in 2008, in the fall of 2008, I had the opportunity to work for another movement, Elder Harry Belafonte. And through his relationship, because of um, Mr. Belafonte's relationship with Dr. King, the organization that I was working with um, that Harry Belafonte started uh, had chosen to use this training philosophy called Kingian Nonviolence as its core training philosophy. So this organization, The Gathering, was going around the country doing these Kingian Nonviolence trainings. And I was on the executive committee of the organization. So when the training came to Oakland, I was like, I guess I should go check it out. And in two days, like my life completely changed. After 10 years of doing nothing but social change work, I thought I had some idea of what the word nonviolence meant and some idea of who Dr. King was. And it turns out I knew none of it. Um, And so in those two days, I gained this like really intellectual fascination with this theory of nonviolence. And two months later, a young man named Oscar Grant was shot and killed um, in Oakland, most of most people probably know that story. And I ended up on the steering committee of the coalition that came together to respond to the shooting. And having just taken this training, like I could just feel from the just the the very bottom of my heart that we needed a nonviolent response in this new way that I understood the word. But having just taken this two-day workshop, I didn't know how to articulate it. And so 
I found myself just like stumbling through my words and getting booed at community meetings and trying to convince people and trying to talk to people about this newfound like wisdom that I I just couldn't, the words were just not coming out of my mouth. And so that summer I decided to go to the University of Rhode Island where every year they do uh, an intensive training to certify new trainers in King Yenam Islands. And I traveled there that summer and met Dr. Bernard Lafayette, who is the co-author of the the King and Nonviolence curriculum, who was on Dr. King's senior staff and got to meet him and was trained by him and I've pretty much been doing that work ever since. So, you know, over the, over the times, like I've definitely found that like my path into the work of nonviolence was through Dr. King, but the work of the Ahimsa Collective, like it's all you in that lineage, you know. divert a little bit, but oh, we're going to oh, just stay oh, focused on you the whole time. It's really fun. Um, the there's something that I know you've talked about before. There's this way that when we're talking about violence, it's like important to make the clarity between interpersonal violence and systemic violence and um, all these different levels of violence. And there's some things you say in, in your book about how you believe that whatever way we transform violence on the interpersonal level, you believe that we can actually really scale that up um, to like large social change levels using like a fractal metaphor of nature, right? That we can just sort of multiply. And I wonder if you'll just talk about that a little bit about sort of um, how can we understand um the nature of when we're thinking about nonviolence as the broad framework, how it's applied both on the interpersonal level and the systemic level and the relationship between them. Yeah. So this is, I guess, a plug. I know this book just came out, but I've started to work on my second book, uh, which is called Fierce Vulnerability. Um, And that book gets a lot deeper into this idea of change being fractal because it's a new thing that I'm, I'm exploring, but yeah, doing, work in prisons with Sonia Shah. Oh my God. I've um, like, I've really gotten to see what it takes to heal trauma. Right. And uh, reading books like Emergent Strategy by Adrian Marie Brown, um, I've gotten into this idea of fractals and fractals are like patterns that kind of repeat itself over and over and over again. And no matter how small you zoom into something or how far you step back and look at the big picture, it looks the same. And I've started to think about this idea that change is fractal in nature, that not only that what's possible at the smallest scale is possible at the larger scale, but the same principles that guided transformation at the interpersonal level have to be used at the larger social levels, right? So I think people who do a lot of restorative justice work and transformative justice work, at least intellectually, understands that you can't shame people in the transformation, that if someone causes harm, by shaming them and isolating them and calling them bad people and criminals, like that it doesn't work to transform that person. And yet when it comes to direct action and when it comes to these social problems, we feel like we can shame the other side into transformation. And, you know, one thing that I've been playing around with in in these fierce vulnerability workshops, which are these workshops that East Point has developed over the last year or so, is that... um, you know, I have a, a a family member who has a lot of unhealed trauma. And that trauma manifests. And like over the years, we've had many conversations with her about her relationships with money and men and her son and work and career and all of these different things. And at some point, I realized that she has some like deep core traumas. And if that core trauma doesn't get healed, then we're always going to be dealing with these manifestations. And at a larger level, 
this country has an infinite amount of issues that we're dealing with, whether it's police violence or environment or the broken government or economics or education, all these things. But this country has some core trauma. This country is is built on the genocide of indigenous peoples and the enslavement of African peoples. And those are core traumas that we have never healed. So until we heal those things, there's always going to be manifestations of that trauma. And I've found that you know, one of the most healing things that we can do on an interpersonal level is to create spaces where people feel safe enough to talk about their biggest shame, right? There's a great quote that I learned in, in prison through Ahimsa um, that uh, I think it's actually a Brene Brown quote who says that um, shame derives its power from being unspoken. And when you can give space for people to speak to our shame, it's incredibly liberating, but you have to create containers where people feel safe enough to say, yes, I did this thing, and to trust that they're not going to be isolated from beloved community. Because if they feel like if I admit to this thing, I'm going to get thrown out of society, they're never going to admit to it. Um, and being able to say I did this thing is part of their healing process. And I, I think when we think about the legacies of slavery and the legacies of genocide on, on, on this land, and even some of what's happening now on the border and all these things, like these are things that the country should be ashamed of. Mm -hmm. And how do we use direct action mm -hmm. to actually create a conversation that feels safe enough for the country to talk about that mm -hmm. and to really sit with the shame of gaining all of these privileges out of such harm and oppression and violence? And so... Yeah, like the same ways in which we do restorative justice work in the prisons, I'm trying to picture what that could look like in, in direct action spaces and resistance spaces. Yeah, there's a point in your book and just when you've talked that you talk about like we have to get to the place where we institutionalize nonviolence. Like we actually have to believe and see it as the way to be in the world. And I think there's something about, I don't, I don't love the word institutionalized, but I think the spirit of here's the spirit that I feel about it, that we, like, there's all the, always this, like, you know, weird way people are like, oh, are we naturally violent? You know, isn't that just who we are? Um, and that, isn't it also that we're actually naturally nonviolent, that, that we're actually naturally compassionate, right? And that there's a way that, um, that maybe there's this sense of, like, we've also created a lot of situations of violence and that we have this capacity and ability to actually choose nonviolence as a way to be in the world. And I just wonder if you talk to that about that notion of quote unquote institutionalizing yeah. nonviolence. One thing I want to say before that is on just like human nature, right? That it is true that we have the capacity for violence. That is part of our nature. That is part of our reality. And yet there's something about violence that also breaks us. Right. And, and, this is something I heard from a guy named Paul Chappelle. Um, and he says that if violence is part of our nature and if it's part of who we're meant to be, then why does it break us? Like, shouldn't we be able to engage in it without it causing this permanent, oftentimes, damage? Um, and I always think about that because, yeah, like I get that part of our nature is that we are capable of it. But what does it mean for us that we are capable of something that also causes permanent damage and PTSD and anxiety and depression and all these things? And maybe the things that are actually a part of our core nature that we're supposed to be 
who we're meant to be are the things that uplift us and fulfill our potential as human beings, right? And unfortunately, we don't always get to see that because violence has been so institutionalized. Like we talk about how white supremacy and patriarchy and all these forms of violence has been institutionalized and are constantly being reinforced by our media and by government and by law enforcement and schools. And we're just swimming. It's, we're fish in water. Like we don't even see how deeply we're being conditioned into violence and separation. And we're talking about capitalism, how deeply capitalism conditions us to compete against each other and to be, to see ourselves as separate. And part of the work of Kingian nonviolence specifically is to take the teachings and the practices of nonviolence and go into the same institutions that perpetuate harm and violence and institutionalize its antidote. And like if violence has been institutionalized then the medicine also has to be institutionalized. So what would it look like if our institutions, schools, media, government, were created in a way that it was constantly reinforcing the best of who we are? And I think that's part of the, the work of nonviolence is working within institutions specifically to really integrate these teachings so that um, – we're constantly being reinforced with a, with a different way of relating to each other. Because mm-hmm. otherwise we fall back on our default, right? There's another quote that I love. Um, it's an ancient Greek soldier who said that we don't rise to the level of expectations, we fall to the level of our training. Right? Like we have these wonderful expectations about wanting to create beloved community and wanting to be kind to each other and wanting to love our enemies. And then when the conflict happens, because of the ways that we've been conditioned, we fall back to our defaults. Mm-hmm. And for most of us, our defaults in conflict are responding to conflict in ways that create separation because that's how we've been trained. And so how do we train ourselves to, to have a new default? It takes a while. It takes institutionalization. Three-part question. You can take any piece of it. Who are your people? Where are they from? And what from their legacy do you inherit and enact? Mm. Right, just easy. Just lobs out the gate. Well, uh, so uh, one of my people, a lot of people here know Walter Riley. I don't know if he's in the. And uh, his whole, he's from North Carolina. And. Uh, okay, okay, see. From Durham, North Carolina. And. Uh, him and his brother and uh, other folks, they, they have uh, been part of the civil rights movement, been part of more uh, radical movements uh, after that. And uh, they were, their, their father uh, grew tobacco. Mm. And um, so they had a lot of brothers and sisters. And... And uh, so that's that side of it. Um, and, and of course, um, he knew his great-grandmother who had been a slave. Um, and that they kind of stayed in that same area. Um, then on my mother's side, um, she's from New York. And... Uh, uh, her father was a, I guess, somewhat known pre-beat poet mm. named, uh, named Lawrence Patterson. And uh, her mother was a, had, 
escaped the Holocaust. And um, so they, they met in some sort of Communist Party-related sort of stuff. Um, as we do in the Bay Area. <laughs> no, this was in New York. No, I'm just saying, as, yeah, as we yeah, do yeah, as yeah, well. Yeah. It's familiar for us. Um, and, yeah, and so then you obviously you have different, uh, they're two very different families. Um, my grandfather on her side's family is from uh, Syracuse, New York, and they're kind of, there's all sorts of mixing, trying to figure out who is, you know, when you're doing ancestry, what's, what's going on. But, uh, yeah, so I, what I take from them, I, I think that, all, and, and my grandmother on my mother's side also was a poet and ended up running Oakland Ensemble Theater uh, in the 70s and 80s. And uh, they moved here obviously. And um, so, uh, so much of all of those things that I just described are, you know, just right there evident in everything I do. Mm-hmm. Um, Did you have any choice but to be an artist or an activist? <laughs> well, it's, it's interesting. Uh, none of that stuff was pushed on me, you know. I think also some of it being just the residual of everybody's busy doing things mm-hmm. like, and you know, this is the age where, like, when I was five and six, you don't, you just go outside and whatever, things happen. There's no, like, oh, pick somebody up after school and make that sure that, situation. you know, <laughs> that sort of thing. So, um, politics or art, none of that was pushed on me, but it was just happening around me. And uh, so, therefore, I think I took it on more as, as my own thing, whereas sometimes people can, you know, you have some resistance over what your parents are doing because you want to define yourself, so, yeah. You know my pops as well. Yeah, and I've been known, knowing your father since I was, uh, I don't know, late teenager, and he was always one of those people coming around, like, <laughs> that, that, always had something very uh, poignant to say that you kind of didn't want to run into him sometimes. Yeah, because cause it, could be a, it could be a long-winded poignant or like a task-oriented poignant. Yeah. Those are the two options. Yeah, <laughs> yeah like he was going to set you on the right path and you didn't always want to be set on the right path. Yeah, I feel the same way about your dad. <laughs> Somebody asked me tonight how long I've known you, and my answer was about the same. Like, I've known him since I can remember knowing yeah. people or things yeah. and places, and not from a one-to-one inter- introduction or interaction, but just from being yeah. in the same you space. You must have been like this. Yeah, and you were like, like this, and then I have a distinct memory of you were out in my neighborhood trick-or-treating, and I was like, Boots Riley, trick-or-treats? And you were like, you were like no. <laughs> you were like, I'm here because someone else told me that I should be here, and we're about to go home. And I <laughs> That feels about the, the, the right thing for me. I, I brought up my father because I can pinpoint my first moment of engagement with activism and art uh, circa 99, 2000, and he was running for office, and I felt completely disenfranchised from the system. It was just around the same time that Prop 21 mm-hmm. had come into to action, same thing with 209, and I remember that as the moment where I decided not just to be in and around the family business of activism, but to 
to drive to and through it. And I wonder if you had that same moment, if there was an event or some sort of watershed moment in your life that made you say, I have to be engaged for freedom on my own terms. Yeah, I mean, I think there are a, a couple things that I, I can't, that, that, that the, the engagement for freedom and then on my own terms. Um, one is I, uh, when I was 14, I went down, I, I um, was helping to uh, organize, well, I was supporting the organizing of some farm workers in the McFarland and Delano area who were making something called the Anti-Racist Farm Workers Union. And um, so there was a summer project where you go and you kind of, you sleep at farm workers' house they wake, that, that are organizing and they wake up at three in the morning to go to the fields and you're, and they, they say, okay, it's your job to uh, make the, you know, to, to make the uh, whatever caravan and show up at the fields or the, you, you're going to uh, do the, the, the rally, you know, meaning like you're, you're the person that makes the signs, you're the person that, or, and you're the person that makes sure the truck shows up. And you're like, I'm 14, I don't, I, I, they're like, well, here's just the packet step by step, just make it happen. If you don't make it happen, it's not going to happen. And um, so that that was like a, a summer camp experience, but it also was, uh, it, it, you know, on, on the one hand, it was separated from, because at my time, being a teenager, I was very worried about being cool and being, you know, so I wasn't going to, like, give somebody a flyer for something. That just wasn't going to happen. And, 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 but this allowed me to be away from all of that. And then... So that opened me a little bit more. But then I hear um, these folks organizing, you know, that, that, that worked together, you know, in the fields, talking about just in practical ways how they were going to build this organization in the Valley and what the context, what that movement was going to mean in context of the rest of the world and how it was going to affect the rest of the world. And it really felt uh, powerful. It felt like they had a concrete idea of, of what they were doing. And, um, and, and so then the next time was, and, and, and so that got me interested in being involved, but what made me want to combine the music with it and do all of that was um, for that organization that was connected to that Progressive Labor Party, International Committee Against Racism, um, we were doing what a lot of radical organizations end up doing, which is kind of flyering for something general that people can't really connect to. And it was like we were, we were every weekend we'd be in the Sunnydale Projects. Mm -hmm. And we'd be passing out flyers that were kind of general, like fight against racism, join this organization. And we kind of got to know people there, but it wasn't anything for anyone to connect to. But, you know, um, one day, and we would go there like every Sunday. And one day we got there and everybody told us this story about what had happened the day before. And um, the story was that these and, and I talk about it some in one of the first songs that 
I may call it, I know you, um, these two eight-year-old twins um, got beat down by the police. Um, the police said, they, they were big for their age, but still they're eight years old. And the police said that they were selling drugs. And uh, the mother came out seeing this happen, and they started beating up the mother. Then everybody from the Sunnydale Projects, like, came and gathered around. And there were two cops, and they got really scared, and they started shooting in the air. And, you know, if you've ever been around a gun going off... And I have. Yeah, there's nothing logical that necessarily happens except for get away from there. Mm -hmm. And so the whole crowd just started running. And they, they continued to take Rossi Hawkins and her two twin sons into the car. Now, a week before, or two weeks before, um, in, the, in San Francisco, there had been a case where the police beat a man up and just drove him around for hours until he died and showed up at the hospital saying, oh, uh, sorry, we, you know, couldn't get here sooner. And so people were afraid of that actually happening because the mother was pretty badly beaten. And um, so anyway, they're running away. And this is the summer of 1989, and the biggest song to most of us, and it was getting actually played on the radio, was a song by Public Enemy called Fight the Power. And um, so then somebody started saying, fight the power, fight the power. And then the crowd started chanting, fight the power. And even though the cops had shot up in the air, they ran back mm. to, the, um, to, to the scene. And whatever happened, something, by the end of it, the police ran away without their car. <laughs> and It's extra special to know that if you know Sunnydale, because it's all uphill. And, uh, and they... And, and people in the crowd got Rossi and her sons to the hospital. Um, and so when I heard that story, and mind you, every, there were so many versions of the story, but what I said is what everybody kind of agreed on. Um, you know, when I heard that, I, I knew that there was an element to what I had already kind of embarked on mm. that was missing. All right, so tell me about the coup. Why does the woman have a gun and a logo? Um, the, the actual idea for the image came from a uh, famous uh, photo of an Angolan freedom fighter um, who has a baby on her back while she's fighting because uh, that... There was a, uh, they, the, uh, there was a, uh, a revolution happening, and there was they had to defend themselves as well, and so um, for me it symbolized like this is something that should be far away from violence, right? 
this is something that where someone shouldn't have to worry about the constant attacks that are happening that and um you know and and but you do mm -hmm. yep i want to know about the song uh wear clean draws that's my favorite song <laughs> Um, I wonder if you can give me the lyrics to the hook in the first verse, and then I have more questions about that. But y'all, y'all might not know the song, so I can give you the lyrics to the, the hook. hook. Yeah. Uh, um, wear clean wear, draws. Yeah, wear clean draws every day, cause things may fall the wrong way. You be lying there waiting on the ambulance, and your underwear, underwear got, got holes and shit. shit. Um, <laughs> And that's a song that I wrote to my then three-year-old daughter, who's now 21. And, and uh, yeah, and, and, and... For our radio audience, there's a fly who wants yeah. to be in Boots' presence like yeah. the rest of us. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that, that I got started getting to a point where... Um, I realized that, that, that I could write songs from just that had to do with my personal day-to-day -day, uh, life. And if I was honest about it, then my view of the world would come in to play. And I think maybe that's one of the first songs I did, did that with. Like I had done that with done personal things and other things, but, but it was like punchline-y and trying to be funny, like cars and shoes or things like that. But this felt personal. And, and before that, I was like, oh, that's not the kind of thing I, mm. I do. I mean, there, there are other exceptions to the rule, but this was like in a real way. And uh, so, yeah, I, I wrote that um, feeling like I knew it would be a song that she would hear later when she grew up. I love that song. I, so my dad and I have a great relationship. I guess I'm talk about my dad a bunch tonight. My dad and I have a great relationship, and it's kind of built around music. And I realized that my dad was stealing my CDs in high school. He's like, literally, I go to school in the morning, I come back, and my shit would be gone. And I go upstairs <laughs> and look through his things and be in his CD deck at the time. And so I made him a mix. And the first song on my Father's Day mix was that song for him. Oh. And it created a, like a dialogue between us. So I just want to thank you oh, for wow. that. Um, another of my favorite songs has a lyric that I think goes, sneaking in the shit probably always been my hobby, 1985 in the Henry J. Lobby, and then it goes on to talk yeah. about Fresh Fest. But I want to know what it's like as someone who's made a life practice of sneaking in the shit, what it's like to sneak into Hollywood. Mm. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's, I mean, it's, it, took a long time uh so i but but i think you know if i were to condense some of the lessons it's that we all um feel like we're the exception to the rule we feel like there's everybody else is making this system happen mm -hmm. but us so when we talk about the system we we, we talk about capitalism there's it's, there's all these moving parts and we have nothing to do with it and there's some truth to that in the sense that everyone feels that way. And the way that um, an economic system works is we all kind of just keep rolling along. Um, 
there's a story I like to tell that's not even my story, but um, um, I have a, another band called Street Sweeper Social Club. And uh, I don't, it's not really in existence anymore, but it's... But uh, real fans, <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> it, it's with Tom Morello from Rage Against the Machine. And, uh, and uh, he told me this story about uh, Michael Moore... Uh, directing a Rage Against the Machine video. The whole idea was they were going to be on Wall Street and, and, and play their song. I forget what it might be, Sleep Now in the Fire. I don't know if anybody knows what video that was they did on Wall Street. And um, the police were going to come. They were going to get shut down. They were just going to film it, and that was going to be the video. So they go to Wall Street, <laughs> and they play their, they play their song, uh, incendiary music, talking about rebellion, and and they play it one time, nothing happens. They, they 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 play it again. You know, they see some cops talking on their walkie-talkie. They play it again in one of the places nearby. The, they close the uh, the security doors, and then they're playing it the fourth time, and they hear this chanting coming from blocks away. And soon they see from around the corner hundreds of people in suits that obviously people that work on Wall Street. And they're saying, suits for rage, suits for rage, suits for rage. And what it seems to, to be is that everybody wishes we had a different world. Mm-hmm. And we, we don't necessarily think that we can do anything to change the world that we're in. We don't necessarily think that it's possible to get to the other world. So we... You know, we're like, okay, I'm just going to do this job. I, I got a Wall Street job, but I wish things were different. Mm-hmm. I got the, you know, because we don't have movements that can do those things. So, that being said, there's a combination of, of things going on with, with getting this movie made. Some people are like, wow, you know, I'm doing all this other work with movies that... I can't, I don't really feel in that way, but they're what makes money. Finally, this is something I can feel good about working with, you know. Uh, this is something that I can, I can connect to, and, you know, it's, it, it's something that I can push down the line and get folks involved. Then there are other folks that probably also just don't think art does anything anyway, so you can say whatever, you know. Um, and, and they're not worried about that. Um, and, and the question is just whether it, will, uh, whether it will make money or not. And, um, and, and so I think there are those things going on. There's also, um, with people that could be in either of those groups, there's, there are real movements happening in the world right now, and in the United States specifically, and like coming off the heels, I mean, it's not off the heels, I mean, that's like 
seven years ago now, six, seven years ago now, uh, Occupy uh, happening all over the, in places where they said it wasn't going to happen, every single town in the United States. Then you got the Black Lives Matter movement happening. All of these things where people are trying to figure out how to change things. And often, art will respond to that. In the past, it's been to just kind of, you know, make some sort of caricature of people that want to change the world mm -hmm. and make it seem like uh, it's acknowledging that that exists, but kind of advise against it in some way. And, um, it, you know, it, but it can, it can take a couple different paths from here. It can become something that feeds a movement and helps it grow or it can become something that is just like a pressure valve that lets off some pressure and people feel like, oh, we, we won. We got some movies that are talking about this stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and that is, has to do with a combination of the artists that do it and the movements that are out there, whether the movements are actually are a, you know, like if people come out of seeing my movie and there's nothing for them to plug into, then um, it then then it just becomes talk, mm. and and it, it becomes a chase shirt. It's kind of like what happened when uh, we all were listening to Public Enemy and everybody had the African medallions and all that kind of stuff, and people came home and the refrigerator was still um, empty. Mm -hmm. And they were like, okay, this is obviously fantasy. Mm. This is not connected to something real. So it's up for movements to, to, to get involved, to, to get involved with things and use tactics that people can grab onto and do something. Uh, all right, let's talk about this movie. Sorry to bother you, you guys seen it? In my notes here, it says, pause for raucous applause. So <laughs> you guys are doing it. Uh, what is the value and discomfort? What is the purpose of making art that upsets your viewers, bothers them as a baseline? Mm. I think um, that, yeah, I want people to be engaged with the art that I make. I want it to make people feel a certain way. I, I want it to, them to feel it viscerally because then the ideas that are talked about um, become more important. Um, also, I, I think like even just as, as an organizer, not saying that I am, that, that gets tossed around, I'm not doing that right now, but what I understood from being an organizer at one point is um, that what, organizers are effect, or should, should be trying to do is bring people through experiences that allow them to understand the way things are working, allow them to understand the way things are working so that they can, um, they can engage with the world and, and, and help to change things. And, and so, you know, that's what a strike is. It's like not only are you... Um, showing how the world works, people are, people are engaging in changing their own lives. 
and, and gaining an understanding of that. Right? Um, uh, when I, in the 90s, we had an organization called the Young Comrades, but it was named after a, a South African organization from the early 80s called the Young Comrades. There were a bunch of kids that um, came together after the Soweto um, uprisings. And um, I saw some clip on PBS, and I, I haven't been able to find it, but I swear I saw it. And um, they were interviewing somebody that must have been 10, 11 years old. And they were talking about trade. They were talking about the, you know, uh, they, they knew uh, about policies that Reagan was, ha had going on. They knew all of these things, and it was because they were involved in a movement every day. They, they, they felt that they had the power to change what was around them. And the, so they gained, they engaged with the world in a different way. And so with, 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 with my art, I don't want people to just kind of sit back and objectively be like, oh, I, you know, I empathize with that character and they're going through that and they're doing that. I want people to go through similar things mm -hmm. as the characters are going through. I went through some things. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 and that way, and, and, and so, and for it to not be, you know, so many things, there's, there's a, there are, when making art, there's all sorts of rules that some of them are very good. They're, they're, they're like, I heard that if you rhyme, people will like your rap, you know, that sort of thing, right? You don't have to anymore. Yeah. Um, but those, those sorts of things. But then some rules end up just becoming a safety net, hmm. like where you don't know if what you're doing is good. But you just know, okay, I did meet those rules. I followed them, so it must be good. Mm -hmm. And that's, that becomes the gauge, and then that's when it starts getting boring. Mm -hmm. What I did was I went out to all the black male cinematic peers of yours mm -hmm. that I can think of, and I asked them if they had a question about the film. Ryan said he dug the film, no questions. Uh, Donald, Kugler, <laughs> Donald Glover said, let me think on it. Um, <laughs> Terrence Nance, who directed uh, An Oversimplification of Her Beauty, and uh, he's the director of HBO's Random Act of Flyness. It's worth seeing. He's an absurdist filmmaker, and uh, he has questions. He's also anti-capitalist, and he has questions Tanaka about... Tanaka knows everybody. I do know everybody. That's my yeah, Oakland job. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. that's the first one they gave me. Uh, in short, his question is, as an anti-capitalist working within a capitalist framework, particularly in the film industry, can you dismantle master's house with the master's tools? Can you forefront yourself and do the work it takes to sell tickets to the show, tickets to the cinema, uh, get a room full of people and not engage capitalism? Or basically, how do you, how do you make amends with the, yeah. the difficulty there? Well, no one person can dismantle capitalism. And uh, what can dismantle capitalism is uh, Ma something, that, uh, uh, something that starts with a mass radical labor movement that can have general strikes that turns into a revolution. That's what dismantles capitalism. Uh, however, <laughs> what I can do is helped 
help to build that movement, help to provide tools to organizers that might want to build that movement, um, and help provide understanding that makes the ground fertile for folks that are building that movement. Um, and so, yeah, it's, uh, I, you know, I, I, I think that there is a tendency to, um, in spaces that are radical and progressive to be like, let's make this other world that capitalism doesn't touch. Mm. But it's, it's, that, that's false. Capitalism is still going. It's touching you. It's touching the world. You've just withdrawn from it. Mm-hmm. And um, I've been in spaces that are supposed, you know, we've had albums out on major labels. We've had albums out on indie labels. It's all capitalism. The indies are just little capitalists that are stealing stuff from you, too. (laughs) You know? Like, it's a way to not engage in the problem. The problem is the exploitation of labor. And that is the key to, you know, it doesn't fix everything, but it's the key to being able to then fixing everything else. And so... I never, you know, it, and, and there are things that we can do to survive, like maybe making a, a collective uh, business is a way to create jobs in a place that don't, doesn't have jobs. I don't know. So that, that's something that I see, but it's not, it's not uh, what is going to dismantle capitalism. I think that what would dismantle capitalism is having, you know, the, the workers fight for uh, more pay, less hours, and therefore more jobs at that place, um, at, at a different place. Um, and, and uh, you know, so, so I, yeah, I, I think that that sort of, and there, there, is a, there is a sort of tendency to be like, I don't want to be connected to this capitalist thing, I want to be connected to this thing, and therefore, because it's smaller, it's not capitalist, or it's somehow, so, and I think that that's more connected to a punk aesthetic than it is to a politic, mm. you know? I think, like, you know how uh, fans of different punk bands will get mad when more people find out about that band, <laughs> you know? And, and, and it's something that... that that is not that, that where that it has to do with a rebellion that's an aesthetic as opposed to a real thing. You know, I have to have this talk with uh, my 17-year-old. Like, there's an idea that rebellion is simply, you know, fuck you or staying awake. You know, yeah. That that it's that it has to that 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 somehow it's rebellious to like not like anybody else around mm-hmm. you. And really, and I have to explain that that is actually, you know, that's, that's, that's is because it doesn't, it, it, it doesn't have a class analysis, because it doesn't aim, that doesn't aim to organize people on the, on the basis of the contradiction of the system that we're living in, that actually helps the system out. That actually, you know, it, it just makes these little clicks. 
and, and, and it's not even just done in the punk world. It's done in worlds that are, that are, that, that where people feel like they are actually working to change the world, that people feel that they are actually radical. And it happens in, you know, like uh, revolutionary organizations that, that, you know, if someone is not dressed in this certain way, like it gets down to even that. So I, I think uh, my point is I want to get these ideas out in the biggest way possible. And the thing that people are engaged in is uh, something that, that where they are going to theaters. They are watching it on HBO, Netflix, whatever. They are doing all these things. I want to get to them where they are. I don't want to make something and feel good about not not getting there. I mean, you know, uh, Marx himself sold books. That's how most of us know about it. While in Stockton, you became a founding member of the Stockton chapter of the Community Service Organization, CSO, in 1953. So what forces or influences caused you to get involved in the CSO? And how did you begin organizing for Latinos? Well, the CSO, the Community Service Organization, and they did have a chapter in Oakland, and I believe here in San Francisco in the 50s, and it, it was for Spanish-speaking people primarily, and, uh, you know, getting people to register to vote, uh, trying to fight the police brutality uh, that existed then and, of course, still now. Um, but ways that we could really make a change. And we passed a lot of very significant legislation. I was fortunate to be the political director of that organization. And I kind of like to brag because one of the bills that we passed back in 1963 was that you, if you were a citizen, that you could register another person to vote. Before that, you had to find a deputy registrar, you had to get deputized every year, and it was very hard to, to get people to register to vote. But when we passed that law in 1963, everybody could, everybody could register to vote. And the reason I mention this is because in Texas, if people wonder what's wrong with Texas, that's what's wrong with Texas. People can't register to vote. <laughs> they have the same voter registration laws in Texas that we had back here in, in the 50s and the 60s. And so I tell Beto O'Rourke and Julian Castro, get with it, okay? Do something in Texas. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. So, so how did unions form out of this? What, what led you to joining the union? Well, um, what actually happened, it was because of the Bracero program, because they were bringing in uh, thousands of people from Mexico to work in the fields. And it was, of course, it was like slavery, really, because mm -hmm. they didn't have any rights at all. You know, they were living in miserable, miserable conditions. I saw paychecks of people who worked two weeks and earned $15 mm -hmm. because they deducted everything from their paycheck. And when they were injured, they had no doctors. They would send them back to Mexico, even in stretchers. It was a horrible situation. And uh, so... You know, I thought, what can we do about this? And, of course, the local farm workers, their wages had dropped down to 50 cents an hour. That's what they were earning at that time. Yeah. And it was a terrible situation. And so that's when Cesar and myself and the whole CSO, we focused on ending that program. And of course, unfortunately, 
it's alive today uh, under the Trump administration, and now it's called the H-2A Foreign Worker Program. Mm -hmm. And uh, again, they're trying to uh, pass uh, legislation that they would not have to pay the minimum wage. And, and you know, so it, it was that motivation that said, well, you know, what, what workers need, of course, is a union. This is what the workers need. And so Cecil and I uh, talked about this, and we both tried uh, to form organized farm workers, and we turned them over to other labor organizations, but they kind of fell apart. So at that point, Caesar said, and, and he called me to his house one day, and uh, we were both working in Los Angeles at that time, and he said, I need to have a talk with you. And I said, okay. And he said, we have to start a union. I said, what? I thought he was kidding. In fact, I started laughing. And then he said, no, if we do not do it, farm workers will never have a union. And so, but then he said in the next breath, but uh, we, will, we will never see a national union in our lifetime. And I said, why, Cesar? He says, because the growers are too rich, they're too powerful, and they're too greedy, mm -hmm. and they're too racist. Mm -hmm. And of course, that was true, what he said. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But you still found a way to fight back, right? You formed the UFW, and you were very effective at what you did um, with the UFW. So starting out, um, I mean, obviously it wasn't all success at first, right? There weren't a series of successes, but there were later, right? So my next question is, as you worked with the CSO and then the UFW, how did you hone in on what needed to be done? And what mistakes did you make in organizing before you figured out which strategies worked and which did not? Well, you know, sometimes things just come to you, and that's what I like to say to people that are organizing. If we know that something needs to be done, just start doing it, mm -hmm. even if you don't have all of the answers, because the answers will come. And, of course, the answer that came to us was the boycott, mm -hmm. the great boycott. And actually, it was an attorney here from San Francisco uh, named Stu Weinberg, but people might know him, and he was one of our volunteer attorneys. He said, have you ever thought of starting a boycott? We said, wow, okay, let's try it. Because they were doing the bus boycott, you know, in yeah. the South. And so some of our young volunteers, they started hitchhiking, and they start, went back east and started a boycott against one of the, one of the liquor companies, Shenley. And, of course, we won. And, and I like to talk about the great boycott, because sometimes, especially right now, uh, when things are so rough and people get kind of disheartened. But I like to say to people, there, were, there was a busload of 40 farm workers and volunteers, young volunteers, one of the, one of the people was a Filipino uh, who couldn't, well, he was 80 years old, 80 years old. And some of the farmers that went couldn't speak English. But they all went in, in a bus to New York City. And in a year and a half, they were able to organize the whole United States of America to stop eating grapes. 17 million Americans stopped eating grapes. Wow. Yeah. It's yeah. <laughs> incredible. And, and I know people in the audience here, many of you are out there that stopped eating grapes and also picketed stores and, you know, helped the farm workers win. But I like to use that example because sometimes we think that, that you know, what we, that, that our activism work and what we have to accomplish right now is so big mm -hmm. that maybe we can't do it. But the way that the farm workers did it and those young volunteers is they just went out there and talked to people and talked to people. Yeah, yeah. They went to labor union meetings and... Uh, every audience that they could find, churches, et cetera, to get people to help. And I think that's what we have to do today. Mm -hmm. um, you've upheld and shown throughout your life that equal participation of women is vital to any movement or cause. Can you tell us about your shift to feminism and when you began to reevaluate your position as a woman in the movement? 
Well, uh, I feel very strongly about that. Um, my, my, I always thought it was a feminist because my mother was, you know, uh, she was a strong uh, figure in our family, the dominant mm -hmm. figure. She was a businesswoman and um, a single parent for a long time <clears throat> and uh, a leader in the community. But I hadn't really crossed uh, that whole important path about the right to abortion because as a Catholic, the way that I was raised, that abortion is a sin, right? Mm -hmm. So I ended up with 11 children. <laughs> but, but, <laughs> but uh, you know, you know, with you know, talking to Gloria Steinem, talking to Eleanor Smeal, who is the uh, the head of the feminist majority, Peg York, and they finally got me to understand that this is about science, okay? This is about science, and this is about women having control over their bodies. And if women do not have control, as we all know, the audience here, if women do not have the control over their bodies, they can't even control their own, their own fates, their own careers. And that's really, really important. But I think now we have to go even further. And recently, I have been quoting Coretta Scott King, who said, we will never have peace in the world until women take power, okay? Yeah. And, <laughs> And, uh, and we know that women add a lot. I mean, and I think that, and I, I really do believe this sincerely, when there is any kind of a meeting and you have all of these people making decisions that affect everybody's lives and affect things that are happening, on, in, happening in our world, if we do not have an equal number of feminists at that table, they're going to make the wrong decision, okay? They're going to make the wrong decision. And yeah. I, I, I just want to mention that I just saw the movie Harriet, about Harriet Tubman. I don't know if people have seen that. But, you know, when I saw that movie, I realized something that I think I have, and I think that a lot of women have, and that is intuition. Intuition. And I don't know how many times after I saw the movie, I kept reflecting on my own life. And when you get these really strong feelings that you know that something isn't right, and I think that we as women, we hold ourselves back and we don't speak up and we don't fight for our positions, then, then I think that's where women's power, we're kind of holding back. Mm -hmm. And after I saw the Harriet Tubman movie, I kind of thought, there are so many times where I should have spoken up stronger, you know, than I did. Of course, she had a gun, I think, in the movie, right? <laughs> She had a gun. <laughs> so we have to find something to substitute for the gun, right? Yeah. <laughs> but we have to kind of really, really fight for what we think is right as women mm -hmm. and find the kind of tools that we need and the support that we need because we do want justice. We as women, we want economic justice. You know, we want equality. We want to challenge the things that are wrong in our society and in our world. And we just have to work very, very hard to make sure that we... And I'm going to use the word feminist because we know there are some women that aren't there yet, right? <laughs> and uh, that feminists can take power. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. Thank yeah. you for that. <laughs> yeah. And even if it takes a long time, you know, as yes. long as we keep going and, 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 and working and doing the work that we do, you know, we will win in the end. But we just can't get uh, cynical or we can't get so... Have despair the work that we're doing that we don't win. We think we're not going to win. We are going to win, but we just have to keep working. Okay. Yeah. Great. So, 
So with workers' unions, how do we do that? How do we form unions as workers? How do we get involved with union organizing? What, what can we do to get started if we're interested in unions? Forming? Well, it's fairly easy because there are laws that, that help workers organize. And uh, there's, the, there's laws at the national level. And uh, I, I know that, again, President Trump is trying to make it more difficult, especially for uh, people at colleges to be able to organize. Uh, they're trying to take away the right of college students to organize. I mean, the researchers, you know. And mm-hmm. But the thing is, if, if people come together, and that's all it is. What is a union? A union is an organization of workers. That's all that it is. And that's, that's what a union is. And workers can choose their own leaders uh, that they want. And what you can do is you can file uh, with the National Labor Relations Board, uh, and or if you're a teachers or a public servants, you have another uh, set of laws that cover you. People just come together, they file a petition, and if there are, uh, if the employer is very oppressive, you can file an unfair labor practice against them. If they try to to uh, retaliate against the workers or an individual, and that individual can file a lawsuit uh, against the employer. That's why you have to have these labor laws that protect people, and that's what the farm workers didn't have. And so when we did the strike and we did the boycotts, that's what we got. We got the Agricultural Labor Relations Act, the best law in the United States, almost the only law in the United States of America except Hawaii where workers can actually organize. And that's kind of sad when you think about it because all of the other states in the United States do not have laws that protect workers from organizing. Yeah, so there's still a lot of work right. to be done. So that was 1975. And I, I like to remind people, too, and maybe somebody in the audience here knows, but has anybody ever asked, how did we get the eight-hour day? Mm-hmm. It was in Chicago. It was May Day. There was a huge, demo, a huge demonstration at the turn of the last century. And then I like to ask people, do you know what happened to the people, the union leaders that got us the eight-hour day? Do you know what happened to them? No. They were executed. They were hung. See, and we're not taught that in our school systems, okay? And we have to teach people what labor is because organized labor, workers organized into their own organizations, their union, this is what has created the middle class in our United States of America. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And if we don't have a middle class, we don't have a democracy. And so this whole push of trying to crush and destroy labor unions, you know, that, that is really, uh, it, it's an impairment on our democracy. Right. Well, so now you are doing so much work with the Dolores Huerta Foundation. You cross the country engaging in campaigns and influencing legislation that supports equality and defends civil rights. So can you tell us a bit about the foundation? Why did you start it? What is it doing? And is there a way people can get involved to help? Well, I left the Farm Workers Union in 2002, and uh, for the, those of you that saw the documentary, and if you haven't seen it, it was produced by Carlos Santana. It's called Dolores. But in the documentary, uh, you know, they, they dwell a lot on my, not, on my not taking the leadership of the United Farm Workers. But when Caesar passed away, I was 63 years old. And I didn't know how long I was going to live. And I just felt that we had to pass on the baton to somebody younger. So I advocated for then-President Arturo Rodriguez, who, by the way, has recently resigned and the farm workers uh, now has a woman leading the union named Teresa Romero, okay? Yeah. So, that, that, so that's good. That's good. But then I wanted to go back to grassroots organizing like we did with the community service organization. And, you know, kind of building that, that leadership that, that we have to, that we need 
you know, because in every community there's a lot of innate leadership. It's, it's not the usual people that you think about, but people that really want to go out there and do things and, and show them how to come together, uh, how to, uh, to, to fix what they need in their community. I mentioned this one lady that uh, got herself elected to the school board. Well, she and her husband, uh, Timoteo, her name is Leticia, her husband is Timoteo, uh, they wanted a, uh, to, they didn't have a gymnasium for their middle school, and the pollution of the air in Kern County is so bad that kids couldn't go outside and play for recess or lunch, you know. They yeah. had to stay in the classroom. So they actually went and uh, uh, petitioned, uh, got a, the signatures, and they passed a bond issue. And they have a state-of-the-art gymnasium that they built for their community. And so these are the kind of issues that they take on. Uh, you know, we have, we have places down there where people don't have sidewalks, they don't have street lights, uh, they don't have, they're not, a, they, they're not attached to sewers. Uh, you know, all of these different problems that people have. And of course, the educational system, as we mentioned before. So we go out there to all these communities, and I, I, I think it's like magic. It's like you go out there and you have some kind of magic dust, and you go and you go to a community and you get the people together in house meetings the way that I was organized, the way Cesa was organized, and we have all these house meetings, then we bring people together, and guess what? The magic happens. They start, you know, they all, we get them together, they make a laundry list of the, thing, the changes that they need, they have to prioritize one or two or three issues, then they have to do the work. They have to volunteer to make it happen. And it's really amazing. So right now we're in, uh, we're actually in five different counties, or four different counties. We're in Kern, Tulare, and Fresno County in the Central Valley of California. And we just started organizing in the Antelope Valley because there, the situation, educational situation, uh, that the African-American students in a city, a town called California City, 81%, eight out of 10 African, uh, black students were being expelled and suspended from school. And when they would do something wrong, they would call the police department. They wouldn't call the parents. Mm -hmm. So each one of those kids had a record immediately, talking about stopping the school-to-prison yeah. pipeline, right? Mm -hmm. And so we're working up in that area also. And so in every community that we go to, we organize the people so that they are the ones that have to take on the issues, they're the ones that have to solve the problems, and that's where the leadership happens. So it's very exciting. And right now we're working on the census, Right, yes. Thank you. And, uh, so, just, you're 89 years old. Uh, after. <laughs> after all these years of organizing, what motivates you to keep going? Well, it's like I said, I think I just want to share the story of empowerment with people. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, just reminding them that we have the power and that we can make the changes that need to be changed, made. And the one thing that, you know, when we organized uh, the farm workers, uh, people would say to us, well, how do you get these poor people that aren't citizens, you know, mm -hmm. there many of them that don't speak English, mm -hmm. how can you get them uh, to be involved? And the main thing we have to say to people is you have power. We have power. Every single per one of us has power, but the power is in your person. And this is all that you need. But you've got to come together with others and you've got to take direct action. Otherwise, we can't make any changes. And I think that's the one thing that we just have to instill into people to make them understand that. Yeah. And not to be afraid uh, to act on their power, especially women. Not yeah. to be afraid to act on our power. You know? Excellent. The, the, and you yeah. know, in the documentary, and I think we have copies of it outside if people want to buy it, but in the documentary, Robert Kennedy... 
just before he gets assassinated. And he says, we have obligations and responsibilities to our fellow citizens. Mm-hmm. So we have obligations and responsibilities to our fellow citizens. And when we think about who are our fellow citizens, mm-hmm. you know, they're immigrants, they're homeless people, you know, the people that we need to reach out to and to get them to become involved, become advocates, you know. We have that responsibility. And if we want to be part of the healers, and again, going back to Harriet Tubman, you know, she fought for the abolition of slavery. Well, we can fight for the abolition of racism, sexism, homophobia, right? Mm-hmm. You know, all the, you know, the things that we have to do to preserve our planet, we can do that, mm-hmm. you know. The abolition of ignorance. Yeah. Absolutely, 100%. (laughs) Excellent. So you have led a tremendous life of activism and organizing. What message do you have for young people who want to enter a life of social service today? Well, I hope that we can get everybody, uh, especially our young people. We know that young people right now, they are kind of leading the path. You might say the vanguard, the young people that are fighting to get rid of guns in our society. Yeah. You know, uh, so I, I like to say to young people, they talk about them being the, the, the future. No, they are the present. Because mm-hmm. they are the present, and uh, they, they have the energy, of course, mm-hmm. that a lot of us older folks sometimes we don't have. You know, so <laughs> they can definitely make a difference, and and not to be afraid. I think the one thing that holds everybody back is is just fear. And I like to uh, say to them, do the canvassing, go door to door. And, yeah. and everybody here, too, I like to say that to them, too. You know, I know everybody here probably votes, but that's not enough. We have to put on our sneakers and go door to door and talk to those people because uh, the ones, especially the ones that are not engaged, because they had doubts and they have fears. And mm-hmm. but sometimes when you at a door talking to people, then you can you know help them uh, get at, you know get rid of some of the fears and the doubts that they have, mm-hmm. so that they can be fully engaged. Wonderful, yeah. So if there was one lesson that you learned that you would like to pass on to future generations, what would it be? Well, I think we are in a crisis in our world right now. Uh, We don't even know if we can save our planet uh, because of global warming. And uh, it's a war that we're in right now, I think. And this war, it's almost like a war against humanity, you might say. Yeah. You know, that all of us have have to, uh, you know, come. we've got to come up and and we've got to stand up and we've got to join the the movement uh, to save our planet, uh, to to save our people. Mm-hmm. Everybody's people. We yeah. Can do it. yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, oh, and we, and we can yeah. do it by voting. It's simple. What was that? And we can do it by voting. Yes. <laughs> Coming back to that. Yep. Circling around always. Well, Dolores, it has been a pleasure and an honor to speak with you. Uh, thank you. I'd like to give a big thank you to the audience and for meeting with us. Before. Before we close, before we close, mm-hmm. and I, I wanted to say that all the audience has been asking us questions, and now I'm going to ask the audience a question, okay? <laughs> and it's a very simple question, and I know you know the answer, but I want you to wait for me before you answer, okay? And the question I'm going to ask you is, who's got the power? And I want all of you to say, we've got the power. And when I say what kind of power, I want you to say people power, okay? But... I want you to shout it so loud that the neo-Nazis can hear us, (laughs) the homophobes, 
the climate deniers, okay, the bigots, the racists, all of those haters out there so they can hear us, okay? So here, here goes the question. Who's got the power? What kind of power? So are we going to be the healers? Are we going to have those uncomfortable conversations with people? Are we going to go out there and organize, advocate, do the canvassing that needs to be done? What do we say? Se puede o no se puede? Sí, sí, sí se puede. Okay. All right, which means, of course, yes, we can. So let's put our hands together and do a unity clap. Let's go. Sí, se puede. Thank you for listening to the CIIS Public Programs Podcast. Our talks and conversations are presented live in San Francisco, California. Podcast production is supervised by Kirsten Van Cleef at CIIS Public Programs. Audio production is supervised by Lyle Barrer at Desired Effect. The CIIS Public Programs team includes Kyle DiMedio, Alex Elliott, Emlyn Guinea, Jason MacArthur, and Patty Fort. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe wherever you find podcasts. Visit our website, ciis.edu, and connect with us on social media at CIIS Pub Programs.